I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Uh, that we've had uh, with wages going up, as they say, in the bottom half of making more uh, in earning, uh, do you consider that we uh, in a better situation to deal with inflation that we have now compared to inflation in the past? I think that this inflation is is substantially higher than anything we've seen since I was in college, you know, 50 years ago. So this is um, this is strong, high inflation, and it um, it it's very important that we get on top of it, and that's exactly what we're going to do. I. I would say this: the labor market is extremely strong. So, from this, from that standpoint, I do think um, we're, we're in a we're in a good place uh, from the standpoint of trying to get inflation under control. Uh, you know, uh, workers are still going to be getting good uh, good jobs and pay increases for some time, uh, uh, and uh, so the economy is strong, and that's that means the economy can take the rate increases that we're going to be making. Ultimately, we need to get demand and supply back in alignment so that we can get inflation back to a more appropriate level. Okay, thank you, sir. And with that, I yield back, Madam Chair. The gentleman from Michigan, Mr. Heisinger, is now recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. And... Uh, uh, Chair Powell, I uh, appreciate this opportunity. I'm actually going to pick up on what my colleague from Florida was just talking about and add that to what uh, my colleague from Missouri next to me here was was talking about. And I, I'm going to, you may have said that the 40-20-20-20 uh, ratio that came from uh, Douglas Holtz-Aiken, breaking that down, about 40% of, of inflation being tied to monetary policy and spending, uh, 20% to regs, 20% energy policy, 20% supply chain. You, you might disagree with that is what you had said, but um, do you believe that spending has contributed to the situation of high inflation that we are in? Okay, thank you. So I, I may have misunderstood um, what, what the, your colleague said. Uh, about Madam Chair, I ask that you suspend. I think Mr. Lawson has his microphone on yet, and I, we're getting a little crosstalk. So if we can maybe uh, yeah, can, add a few seconds say, back yeah. here. <laughs> okay. Uh, are you, right. Is the gentleman muted now? No, clearly he's not. All right, I think you can resume. Okay. I'm just, I'd just like to... Uh, I would ask that you have a light gavel at the end of my time here. I think we were having yes. a little crosstalk as we yes. go back on that. So, so I, I may have misunderstood. I thought that the 40% was, was money supply, but it, you made it sound more like a monetary policy. And, and so I, I, I would, um, I, look, I, I mean, look, we can discuss those numbers, but that, that, that's more, that makes more sense but to me. Point being, has, has spending contributed to inflation? Yes, I think a number of factors have, okay. including... All right. And, and, and I would agree with that. And, um, you know, frankly, many of us have sort of warned or talked about this situation. Um, we have record debt right now, previously, without conflict. Now, war and, and rumors of war 
uh, that we hope aren't going to happen may, may even uh, increase that debt. And, uh, and, and I'm afraid that our spending habits are putting you and all policy decision makers in an even tighter box. Look, we all know that inflation is real. It's hitting, whether it's gas, 379 versus 274 a year ago. Um, groceries, you name it, housing. And when you were here in July, I talked about the housing situation. My family's in construction and, and what that means. And we can't just magically wave a wand and say, oh, we're going to lower prices. Uh, that, that just simply isn't uh, realistic. Um, but uh, what I heard last night is the, the, that the president is acknowledging people are living paycheck to paycheck, and he understands that. Yet the message I keep hearing from the president and my friends on the other side of the aisle is we need to spend even more. And, and I'm concerned that is going to put us, again, into an even tighter box than we currently are. If you care to touch on that before I move on. I, I should stay away from uh, from fiscal policy if you don't. Well, it, 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 look, I'm not asking whether you support a particular bill or not. Theoretically, we're your classroom. America is your classroom as they're watching uh, as they're watching this right now. Um, spending can is a contributing factor to inflation, correct? It is, but it's not. It's not really our job and not ours to comment on. We do have I understand a role here, that. And, and we need to do it. Fully understand that. I just just the facts. That's uh, and, and, all right. So I'm going to move on uh, to uh, another issue, which is uh, rules-based approach to monetary policy. Twenty, uh, or I'm sorry, in uh, in the 114th Congress, I think it was in 2015, I introduced the Form Act, um, which uh, which would. Uh, lay out a rules-based um, monetary policy. And, and I know in your testimony today indicated that a rate increase is expected, and you confirmed that with the uh, ranking member. Um, so what I'm curious, though, is in, since 2017, the Fed's monetary policy report, report included a section on monetary policy rules. And you've been very clear, and uh, uh, now Secretary Yellen has been clear that a lot of rules are, mod uh, are modeled and looked at. Uh, the only exception to this was 2020, the first year of the pandemic, and maybe more surprisingly, the report that was just released this month. For example, in 2017, monetary policy rule section of the report stated, quote, monetary policymakers consider a wide range of information on current economic conditions. Can, it's not included in this report. Can you shed some light on why it was admitted this year? I, you know, I honestly didn't know if that was the case or if, if someone talked to me about this before the thing was printed and sent up here. I don't remember it. That's also a, a real possibility, given the number of things I, I have on my mind right now. But, um, you know, as you say, we didn't, we didn't have it in, uh, in July of 20. Um, we'll have it in the next one. I don't think it's, it's, it was any – there was no big thought, as far as I know, going, going into that. It's just sometimes we include it, sometimes we don't. I, I, I will say that um, I think thinking about policy through rules – is, is something that I've lear I learned a lot about monetary policy doing that. When you're actually implementing policy, uh, no, no, no committee has ever really used policy rules as a way of setting policy. But, but they use them to inform simply, your thinking. It, yes, and I, I guess my idea with the FORM Act was to then inform the market, and that includes us as citizens as yeah. well. And I'd like to, this committee to re-examine that. So I appreciate the indulgence, uh, Madam Chair, as we had that uh, crosstalk at the beginning, uh, and I yield back. Thank you. The gentleman from Illinois, Mr. Kasten, who is also the vice chair of the Subcommittee on Investor Protection, Entrepreneurship, and Capital Markets is now recognized for five minutes.
Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Chair Pro Tempel. Um, you know, I'm always struck that there's a real risk of hubris for those of us in our line of work, at least up here. If we get to write laws, sometimes we conclude that that means we can write the laws of physics as well, which is dangerous. Um, and I am troubled by some of the questioning of my colleagues and, you know, some of the debates around confirmation of your colleagues around climate change. The, the IPCC report that came out last week said climate change effects are outpacing our ability to adapt. We're seeing communities that sort of simultaneously have droughts, floods, and fires, and money is moving in surprising ways. We've seen, personally, I've seen stories just in the last month of one coastal community where the, the roads are being washed out that haven't yet paid off the bonds that were used to pay for the road, and they don't know how to reconnect those communities. Another community on the coast where the mayor is sitting there realizing that one neighborhood he can afford to build a seawall and in another neighborhood it's cheaper to relocate people and dealing with the political fallout of that decision. We have massive political risks that are coming and we know they are coming because the laws of physics do not care how we vote. Um, and I'm, I'm concerned by your response to Mr. Posey when you said that we've, I think you said we've not even done the scenarios yet, <clears throat> excuse me, on the climate change. And I understand these are complicated. But if those scenarios haven't been done, I want to start you know, we, if we don't deal with the financial fallout, the political fallout's going to be far worse. And so I just want to start with a very specific question. NOAA and NASA came out with a report, I think last week or two weeks ago, saying that, that Florida is looking at 12 inches of sea level rise in the next 10 to, 12, 10 to 20 years and 18 inches by 2050. That means that there are whole communities in Florida where there's going to be complete property loss before a 30-year mortgage is repaid that was issued today. Are Fannie and Freddie changing their lending standards in response to those risks in those communities in Florida and elsewhere that are now within 30 years of being unable to repay those notes? I don't know. Um, I asked the question there because in the, the CFTC report, Managing Climate Risk in the Financial Sector, came out about two years ago. They noted that the, the higher an area risk for coastal flooding, the more likely the commercial banks are to be offloading their risks onto Fannie and Freddie. And so if the sophisticated players in the system are seeing this risk and we are at a federal level are backstopping, how are we isolating our federal balance sheet from that risk exposure? I think that's a very likely outcome, actually. I think as private, um, as private lenders will move away from that and uh, – uh, will the government um, force people to move away from the coast, or will they wind up picking – government, that's us – wind up picking up the tab? More, more likely the latter, it seems to me. So moving away from the offloading risk onto the taxpayer, the – back when I was in the energy industry, um, one of the tells that we had that we knew there was a downturn coming in energy markets – was when the big banks started creating special opportunity fund five. You know, and we all we all knew that was code for taking your Dodd Frank compliance debt capital, moving it into an equity pool, and selling it off to the least sophisticated people in the equity space. Um, we all know anybody who spent time in the banking industry has seen that game. To what degree does the Fed or the Treasury have have the ability to monitor where the the sophisticated folks who are seeing this coming are shifting it off to the shifting the risk off to the less sophisticated folks in the private sector. You know, there's a lot of thinking going on about this. I'd, I'd have to I'd have to think about that. But there's there's a lot of thinking about what will happen over longer periods of time in coastal areas and things like that. I I can I can look into that for you. 
Well, it, and it's not just coastal, right? I mean, it's you know, it's California fire risk. Do you rebuild that house where the fire is, and who's holding the paper? You know, if it burns the second time before it's paid off, it's drought risk in communities. You know, running away the capital movements. And, and to be clear, like we are going to create so much wealth in the transition to a clean economy that I think we can find more winners than losers if we're smart about this. But there's this huge capital flight, and and the nervousness I get is, as I said, partly that we're shifting risk onto the public sector. And partly that if we don't have a real good understanding of what the capital structure looks like in these communities, we're not seeing it. As you know, Senator Schatz and I have, have introduced this bill to push and encourage, you know, you and your colleagues to do these climate, whatever we're talking about, scenario analyses. But we know the sophisticated people are going to offload the risk. And as the IPCC report said, the effects are outpacing our ability to adapt, and we need to get ahead of this much quicker. Um, I would, I would want you to know we are, we are working on the scenarios. It's just, you know, it's, a, it's an active effort on our part. Well, let, let us know how we can help you. Make sure you have the resources to move a lot quicker. Um, thank you, and I yield back. Thanks. Thank you. The gentleman from Kentucky, Mr. Barr, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Good to see you again, and thank you for your testimony today. I, I appreciate your testimony that uh, overspending has contributed to the inflation crisis we're facing right now, but I also appreciate uh, your, um, your humility uh, with respect to the Fed failing to meet its price stability mandate and the fact that you admit that inflation is primarily a monetary policy phenomenon. So I want to focus on monetary policy in my questioning. And I know you understand that this has human cost. Uh, I want to share a couple of anecdotes from my district. A painter, Gerald Holland, from Nicholasville, Kentucky, says a gallon of paint costs $10 more today than a year ago. The Suffoletta family from Georgetown, Kentucky, they've been in the retail home furnishing business since the late 1940s. In a conversation last week, they informed me that in the last year, the cost of goods from their manufacturers have increased 30 to 40 percent, and they're still receiving price increase letters every week. And like most small businesses, their cost of labor, labor and overhead have gone up over 25%. So now they are having to determine how to operate without passing those costs on to the end consumer and still have some profits left at the end of the year. I could, I could share dozens, as many of my colleagues could share dozens of these kinds of stories, including from constituents on fixed incomes who cannot afford the dramatic reduction in their purchasing power. Uh, before November 2021, uh, Chairman Powell, when you declared it was time to retire the word transitory in relation to inflation, uh, my colleagues and I repeatedly in, in these hearings last year, after the $2 trillion spending bill, we cautioned you that inflation wasn't transitory, that we were hearing from our constituents, individuals and small businesses, that inflation was hitting them hard and was sticky. But the FOMC kept up with the unconventional monetary policy. And uh, even after you retired the word transitory, as late as February 2022, the Fed was continuing its QE liquidity injections, even though inflation was at a 7.5% 40-year high. And the Fed had rejected an immediately halt to QE at both its December and January policy meetings. Um, uh, this week, economist Mohammed Al-Aryan published an op-ed in which he states that the Fed's insistence that inflation was transitory is, quote, an error that will likely be remembered as one of its biggest ever. And I'm, I, pardon me for contributing to your humility on that. But my question is, has the FOMC learned from its mistake? Has it learned 
that unconventional monetary policy at a time when it's not needed is harmful for the economy? Has it learned that QE during a time of recovery is a recipe for inflation? And has it learned that we cannot print our way to prosperity? Well, I I think the main thing we've learned is that the supply-side constraints that we saw were not as transitory as we had hoped and thought. And as I mentioned, every other mainstream economists and central banks around the world made the same mistake. That doesn't excuse it, but we thought that these things would be resolved long ago. Does the FOMC, do you and your colleagues concede now, in hindsight, that the overly accommodated monetary stance uh, for too long was a mistake, a monetary policy mistake? So I'll, I'll just answer for myself. Um, you know, I, I, that, that's for other people to, that, to assess. I, I would say that we had an expectation. And as I said earlier, I, you know, I, I thought that I thought there was, always thought there was a chance we'd be wrong and that if we were wrong, we'd be able to pivot. And we did pivot, and we pivoted pretty quickly. But by then, the economy really was moving very, very fast. Well, on the pivot, how quickly do you expect a higher Fed funds rate removing the accommodation to bring down inflation, and how does that affect the pace at which you will tighten? Well, I expect, as I mentioned, I expect uh, the Fed funds rate to go up in two weeks and I expect a series of rate increases this year. But as I mentioned earlier, given the current situation, we're going to move, you know, uh, carefully. Um, but my, my concern is that to break this inflation fever now, you don't have a lot of good options. It, it, it's going to take some aggressive tightening in order to break a historically high inflation level. So, but not to belabor the point, just real quick final time on the, on the climate uh, stress testing uh, last year, in response to my questions about the Fed's decisions to join the Network for Greening the Financial System, you affirmed that the Fed's job was not to combat climate change. But in your confirmation hearing, you said that, quote, we are looking at climate stress tests. Uh, this will be a key tool going forward. To, to, to clarify, what is it? Is it? Is it that you will not use this, as Mr. Posey asked you, uh, uh, as, uh, uh, to support capital surcharges for banks serving fossil energy companies? That's, that's not the design or intent of the, of the stress scenarios that we're working on right now. It is really to, to assist us and, and financial institutions who are doing these things themselves very actively, the larger ones, uh, to, to understand the risks. Well, th- th- my time has expired, but as we look at a ener- global energy crisis with the Ukraine the invasion, it time is critically expired. important we don't redirect capital. The gentleman from, from Massachusetts, Mr. Lynch, who is I also the chair of the task force, on financial technology is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Madam Chair. Uh, thank you, uh, Chair Powell, for your, your service and, and your great work. Um, I do want to ask you a, a question about the SWIFT uh, network. And I realize that the sanctions piece of this is owned by Treasury, but I'm curious if in any of your uh, risk analyses uh, you've looked at the possibility that that if we did uh, completely ban Russian banks uh, from uh, use of the SWIFT network and it became a target of the of the Russian uh, uh, cyber forces have we have we basically gamed that out how that might happen and do we feel comfortable that that structurally, and architecturally, that that SWIFT network would be able to resist a, you know, a state-sponsored assault on, on that messaging service? 
I'm sorry, Mr. Lynch. I'm, I'm really uh, not the right person to, uh, to answer that question. That's really a question that our uh, Treasury Department or, or and our administration more broadly and the intelligence uh, groups would be able to uh, address. I'm a little surprised at that because earlier in your question, you talked about uh, cybersecurity and, and how that was uh, that was in your lane in part. But uh, but but I'll let that go. Uh, you did mention the uh, recent Fed report uh, on CBDC, and in that report, it more or less pushed pushed responsibility back to Congress uh, to resolve some of the major issues around the creation of a uh, you know a, a, a Fed CBDC, uh, and and I know that uh, I know that we have a working group. Uh, at MIT and the Boston Fed that are doing great work on this. It started under uh, Chairman Gensler, but now I believe Niha Narula is, uh, is is running that that effort. Um, in, in all honesty, uh, I'm not sure that Congress is equipped uh, by itself to make those key decisions around architecture and and the shape uh, and, and form of, of any uh, CBDC for the United States. And, uh, you know, I, I think we are relying on yourselves at the Fed and, and Treasury to help us. And so I was hoping for a little bit more instruction uh, with, the, with the Fed paper. And it, is, there, is there any way we could, we could collaborate uh, rather than pushing the responsibility on Congress with all the other issues we've got to 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 deal with and also with the disparity. All right, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. We've been watching the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jay Powell, the first of two days of testimony before Congress. Hard to overstate the importance of this appearance before the House Financial Services Committee. We're going to continue to monitor that, obviously, this coming just two weeks to the day before the Fed is expected to begin raising interest rates. The big headline, Powell explicitly saying they're going to raise by 25 basis points in March. Really an extraordinary moment from a Fed chair when you think about it. To be so specific ahead of a policy meeting, let's show you the markets. Markets thus far like what they're hearing from the Fed chair today. The Dow's good for 600 points. That's near 2%. S&P is rallying by more than 76 points, one and three quarters percent. There's the Yield on the 10-year at 183, Russell, NASDAQ, S&P, Dow, all at this hour in positive territory. I've got the investment committee here to break down what all of this means to your money. With me for the hour today, Kerry Firestone, Jim Labenthal, Steve Weiss, Joe Terranova. We do want to begin, though, with senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. And Steve, I near fell out of my chair. I just don't remember a Fed chair ever, ever being so specific as to what they are going to do ahead of a meeting like Jay Powell was today, down to the basis point move that they are going to make? You know, I, I think you're right, Scott, to, to an extent. You're, this has not happened before, but, but it's an unusual situation uh, in the following way. We have extraordinarily high inflation, and there's a fairly public debate among Fed officials um, as to what to do. Um, I don't want to sound immodest, Scott, but I told you this was going to happen. Um, I said he would come in, he would settle it, and I thought he would settle it in favor of 25. Um, and I, felt, I thought he felt a need to settle it. I think that was what was important here. So you're right. It's not happened all that often before. Um, but the Fed has telegraphed in the past 
the amounts that it would it would raise by. So uh, I, I, I'm not that surprised he did this. I think he needed to go. He thought he needed to go into this meeting with guidance to the market that settled a debate that was out there. There's, you know, uh, I think a minority of folks on the committee who wanted to do 50 um, and, and, and a majority or, or, or a center of the committee wanted to do 25. And I think he wanted to give markets really plain guidance on that. Uh, everybody knew rates were going up. It was just a question of how much. And the market had already pretty much priced it in that way. Um, to me, uh, that was important, as you say. Also important that he's taking a very, very kind of uh, it doesn't look like that big of a deal attitude about Russia, Ukraine, though he did reserve judgment at this moment. I mean, he did say and he said it within the last, let's say, 10 minutes, um, <clears throat> quote, we're going to proceed carefully because of what's taking place yeah. in Ukraine. And he just can't say for certain what the fallout is going to be for the U.S. economy, though clearly today not enough, Steve, to take him off course. I think there's two ways the Fed is going to gauge this. The first way it's gauging it is looking at short-term funding markets to see if removing Russia and these SWIFT banks and uh, freezing the uh, central bank's $630 billion of Russian central bank reserves, if that creates any uh, hiccups or, or issues inside of the short-term funding markets. It does not appear to be the case. I looked yesterday, for example, there was a reverse repo operation by the New York Fed, uh, and it, or sorry, from the standing repo facility. Um, and it didn't have any takedown at all. So that was an indication that at least in the U.S. here, there wasn't much of a, uh, a, a, a scramble for dollars. That was one. In the second term, they have to step back and say there's this real tension here between the idea of much higher inflation coming from higher oil prices, higher food prices. You heard one of the congressmen talk about potential for sur- surging fertilizer prices. That could be a big deal. Those in those prices will tend to raise inflation levels. But they could get to a level where they start to really beat back demand, and that could also end up reducing growth. I just almost feel as, as though he contradicts himself in, in some sense, partly today, Steve, when he says just a you know, short while ago that inflation is, in his words, substantially higher than anything I've ever seen uh, since I was in college. And he said that some 50 years ago. But earlier, and I believe it was in the prepared remarks where he says, that inflation is going to moderate this year. He's still sticking to his guns that he thinks inflation is going to moderate, but at the same time suggesting that it's hotter than anything he's seen in some 50 years. Yeah, I think he was a little bit wrong about that, by the way. I think it was, uh, I don't know, 40 years ago when inflation was higher uh, than it is right now. But uh, we'll give the chairman a, a decade pass on that. Um, I don't see those as strictly contradictory, uh, not to contradict you, Scott, but I think the idea that inflation is very high now and he expects it to come down. He hasn't given up that ghost. By the way, most people on the street haven't given up that ghost either with the idea that eventually you're going to have these supply bottlenecks uh, um, uh, uh, resolve themselves. You're going to have a decline in fiscal spending relative to where it's been. You're going to have Fed tightening um, and you'll have some moderation of demand. Those were the four points that he made. And frankly, they seem to be relatively uh, uh, accepted on the street with the question of what is the magnitude of the decline that we're going to have. Uh, uh, some people think it's going down towards three or two percent. Uh, some people think, well, hey, we may get to four percent by the end of the year. Uh, Charles Evans from Chicago was a little more, uh, more pessimistic about inflation coming down today than he had been in the past. Uh, the idea of it coming down, I think, is well accepted. The magnitude of it coming down and how much the Fed has to do to uh, address it. Those are the debates. I, I also want your opinion on the fact that Powell has clearly put his cards on the table. He's turned them over. We we know exactly what he's got. Right. Um, Bullard, though, 
is making a comment today, too, in suggesting that the Fed may have to act more aggressively in keeping what he's frankly said for the last several weeks. I just wonder what sort of showdown, if that's the right word to use, that sets up between these two gentlemen. Bullard now a voting member, of course, and the Fed chair already saying we're not doing 50. We're doing 25. And talk to the hand if you suggest anything otherwise. You can dissent if you'd like. But how does that set things up, Steve, behind the scenes? You've been watching uh, uh, too much Game of Thrones there, Scott. Um, I don't know who the hand is at the Federal Reserve. But uh, you're you're right. Uh, What's going to happen, Bullard could dissent. There could be maybe another dissent. That's not the end of the world for the Federal Reserve. I think what where most Fed officials are is as follows. One, two, three hikes, uh, March, May, June. Take a look around. Take a look around. You start balance sheet reduction uh, probably in the summer. I think that's the best thing. Uh, uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell gave us a little detail on the idea of it. He's coming back down to where it was uh, over about a three-year period. Uh, I think that's pretty much in line with where uh, market consensus. Um, and then you have a bunch of people that are ready to press on the accelerator or shift into another gear, if you will. Uh, Bostic, Mester, um, a whole bunch of people that would go to 50 if they need it. What's interesting, Scott, is that was the plan, I think, beforehand. That's the plan now. I think they want to hold back on the ability to do 50, and I think they want to telegraph 50 to the market. So uh, it's a showdown. Uh, uh, Bullard is definitely on the more aggressive side, probably Governor Waller. It would be a fairly big deal to see a Fed governor dissent rather than a Fed president, but uh, it's happened before. Um, And you may get a couple dissents, but I think ultimately we'll take a look around in the summertime, see how inflation is doing, see if that forecast for inflation to begin to come down lets the Fed go on a more moderate pace. Telegraphed is, is absolutely the word of the day, uh, Steve, and we may have taken telegraph to a whole new level, given what the Fed chair had to say today. I want you, and he's still speaking, by the way, and we do continue to monitor uh, day one of two uh, for Fed Chair Powell on the Hill. Steve, you stay with me. We've got some guests coming up as well. Tom Lee is going gonna, is gonna to join us. Brian Belsky is going to join us. I mentioned the investment committee is with me today, too, and I do want to hear from them right now. Farmer Jim, you've heard the conversation with Steve. You heard what the Fed chair had to say himself. What do you make of it now for what it means to the markets? Uh, Scott, I take great comfort. Let me start there. I take great comfort because I'm in lockstep with Steve Leisman um, at, you know, three rate hikes and then to use his term, pause and look around. But there's a key word Steve used and it's resolution. I've said for some time we are in a correction, nothing worse. We're not in a bear market. We're in a correction. And what it takes to come out of a correction is resolution of the issues facing us, of which there are two. One is what's the Fed's path of rate hikes? Boy, that became a lot clearer today, and it will become even clearer after March 15th, which is only two weeks away. I can't tell you the clarity that will come out of Russia versus Ukraine, but I do feel confident that that uh, conflict will become clearer, the outcome one way or the other, over the next two weeks. And that sets the stage for the economic strength, particularly in the U.S., to shine through accordingly. I have been adding to stocks over the last two weeks. You know I raised cash earlier in the year. I've cut that cash level down in half to about 5% by buying cyclical and reopenings, whether it's the financials this week or Win and Paramount last week when you were out sick. Uh, I think you've got two more weeks to use your dry powder. And you know what? You know what, Scott? It's time to dust off the all-in moniker because in two weeks I'm going to be wearing it again. Wow. Um, Interesting to hear from you. Jim Labenthal. Kerry, the talk going in today was that Chair Powell had to thread the needle. Did he do that? 
I think he's done a very good job speaking today, and it relieved the, the, the pressure that the market has felt about 50 basis points. I mean, there's a sigh of relief that you can feel it's palpable. And, you know, we're now trading at under 18 times next year's earnings. And, you know, I have talked several times about all the stocks that are down, you know, 40 percent from their 52-week high or 50 percent or 60 percent. And now many of them are selling for under 25 times earnings. I, I ran a uh, table today and there's about 30 stocks considered high growth names that are trading at something between a 12 multiple and a 25 multiple. So you can start to look at names like Facebook, like Zillow, like PayPal, and nibble at them or add to positions. Be careful, though, because until we move above the 200-day moving average, or that's 2.5% or so away, or the 50- and 100-day moving average, those are levels of resistance. That's 5% away. So we need to do that carefully and deliberately because the market is fragile here. But I think what Chair Paul has said today makes sense, and it gives us a feeling of kind of certainty and that relieves that great uncertainty we're already feeling about Ukraine and Russia, despite Ukraine being GDP of less half of Massachusetts. But we understand markets don't like war and don't like any uncertainty at all. Well, the markets clearly like what they heard, at least thus far today. The Dow is good for better than 600 points as we have this conversation. Joe Turnover, are you surprised by anything that Fed Chair Powell had to say today? And now how do you factor all of this in to how you are thinking about stocks? Extremely satisfied, and, and all the panelists have already used the word clarity, and that's exactly what the market wanted, Scott. It's almost as if the market was sitting at a fork in the road and needed to go in one direction, was sitting there waiting for guidance which way to go. We've got that guidance now. We're moving in a direction. Is it the right direction? We don't know the answer to that. Ultimately, it might not be the right direction. We might have to double back and go the other way. But at least we're moving right now. And I also think the way the market is pricing today, the market is suspecting that the chairman is willing to let the economy run a lot hotter than he previously did. Look at what's going on with the two-year right now, which is recapturing almost 25 basis points of the losses in the last couple of days. And clearly, this is a market that has a value-oriented favorability to it today, financials leading the charge as well as materials and energy. Steve Weiss, I'll get to you in just a second, but first back to Steve Leisman. And I, I think you, you started to make this point, Steve, at the very outset here. This was an explicit attempt by Jay Powell to speak directly to the markets, was it not? For sure, and maybe a little bit to his committee. Interesting. Expand on, on that and, idea. And is, and is, also, that, is, that, is that to sort of gu well, guide, yeah. the, guide the other hands in the room about where he himself sits and where he expects? Yeah. And maybe that's an interesting word to use, where he expects the votes to be? Sure. I mean, I think it, it, it's useful for him to let the market know, let the other committee members know where he comes down on this issue. And that has tremendous sway on the committee. Uh, even a guy like Bullard... Um, you know, again, he made dissent for effect. I forget who it was. It was Kaplan who told me, uh, you know, you dissent and then you move on. So he may eventually uh, not dissent after that. So what, what happens here is you make your point in the committee uh, and, and then you move on and, and, you may, and, and, and go with where the, the uh, consensus is. So 
Um, I think he's talking to his committee. He's talking to the markets. I think, Scott, it's important to say, I want to go back to the issue of Russia and Ukraine, where there's two pieces of this. One was the short-term issue of, are markets functioning well? Okay, check. The other issue of the broader macro effects, um, you know, Karen was saying it earlier, yes, Ukraine is uh, half of the size of Massachusetts. Russia is the 11th largest economy in the world. But in certain specific areas, they are vital. Uh, there's discussion about uh, the, the gas and oil and whether that could potentially be sanctioned. Um, there was discussion about fertilizer. There's metals. What Russia produces, if it's not coming out, is going to have to be replaced. Um, Russia is not a huge trading partner of the United States, but we trade with them. Europe is a bigger trading partner. I've seen some work today that suggests that European GDP could take a hit as a result of this. There are macro effects to come from this. This is a time for the Fed chairman to be steady, for him to be clear, um, and, and to say, you know what, let's just be careful here. We don't want to go too far too fast because there's this other big thing hanging over us that we need to sort out. And, and he does it, Steve Leisman, against the backdrop of a strong economy, which... You know, he, he underscores and got the data, a little play the, the data, yeah. the data this morning uh, underscores that as well. You know, the, the read on jobs would certainly underscore the fact that this is a strong economy. Look, if I was raising rates right now and I needed to get someplace real quick, I'd be sure happier that it was done with 3.9 percent unemployment rate with the other people, not percent unemployment rate. And uh, what is it? 11 million job openings. Uh, the Fed here, uh, Scott, it's not maybe well appreciated. They may be killing job openings, but not jobs, right? If they bring down, if they got rid of 5 million job openings down to 6 million, we'd be back down to the normal number of job openings. So uh, the, the job market is way out of balance right now relative to where it should be. So he does have some play. And, and by the way, I, I'm still having a hard time getting too worked up about getting to a 1% or 1.5% funds rate with an economy that is already as big or bigger than it was before the pandemic, with the unemployment rate the way it is, we did five seven. Uh, sorry, we did seven percent on a GDP in the fourth quarter. We're going to do about two, but the expectation is higher than potential growth this year. Um, the debate, Scott, is about valuations of the stocks that went crazy. And I was looking at a board yet up early at Peloton coming down and DocuSign coming down and all those sort of stocks that everybody thought the pandemic was going to last forever. I'm not concerned about that. I'm interested in the economy. It looks like it's going to grow okay and withstand uh, uh, a Fed rate hike to a modest level. In, in some respects, those stocks have become it, its own sort of sideshow to, to what's taking place in the, in the other parts of the market in part to, to your point. Uh, Steve Weiss, you've been... I think without question, one of the more concerned, cautious, negative views in the, in the market of late. Has that changed now that you've heard from the Fed chair today, explicitly laying out what's going to happen two weeks from today? No, I, I've been rewarded for my cautiousness, for my high level of cash, and have said that we'll see periodic you know, rallies in the market short term. To me, what I heard today is yes, Fed can't, you know, Powell came out at 25 bips. We'd already taken 50 bips out of the market, so that was no surprise. So anybody who's thinking that was a surprise just hasn't been paying attention to what's going on in Ukraine and Russia and with oil prices. At the end of the day, what you're left with, and what I got from Powell's testimony, is that inflation is their only concern. There is no Fed put. There is no, you know, interest in protecting financial assets to a certain extent. All he cares about is getting inflation under control. 
And you know what happened with Ukraine and Russia? Inflation got much worse. So all the input points are going higher, whether it's petrochemicals, whether it's oil, all of them, period, end of story. And so you're going to see a Fed get more aggressive. So you may have gotten a reprieve from 50 on this particular meeting, but come in six weeks, I believe you'll see 50 and you'll see a steady increase. So where does that leave you with the market? So the market is still trading close to 19 times today, and the pendulum swings both ways. It swung too, swung too far in terms of where we got to on a PE in the market, and it's going to may overswing on the way back, correct too much. And where will we wind up? My guess is at a certain point in time, we'll wind up at 14 to 15 times on a PE basis. Some companies do pretty well. Carrie's right. There are a number, exceptional number, of cheap stocks out there. But they continue, in my view, not to be the ones that have come down 40%. That should be down 80%. So I'm continuing to stick with cash. I'll pick my spots here and there. I like what I sit with, with Volkswagen now at about four to five times earnings. Despite splitting up, the markets ignored ignored news in the markets. So, you know, I was on the phone with, with GXO management today for about an hour going through it. Business couldn't be stronger. So the economy is stronger, but also prices are going up. Rents are going up. Labor, we know, is going up. So tell me what's good out of that and why the Fed won't double down, given the wind is at the back of the economy, and go forward with rate increases, which won't be good for the market. You just better and hope. neither will the profit picture, by the way, when the companies start reporting next quarter. Well, that's what I was just going to say, is, is you better hope at, at 14 to 15 times, if that's where the multiple resets to, that earnings can remain strong in the environment that we're in, because if they can't, then you have the likelihood of an even greater reset in terms of valuations in, in stock prices. Um, let's do this. Let's take a quick break. Steve Leisman, uh, I think I want you to hang around with us for the rest of the hour as well. Tom Lee is on the other side of this break. Brian Belsky is as well. The committee is not going anywhere. And it doesn't appear as the Fed chair is either anytime soon. His testimony continuing today in the House. We're monitoring that. We're back on the half right after this. All right, welcome back. The Fed chair continues to testify before the House Financial Services Committee, day one of two before lawmakers on the Hill will be before Senate banking tomorrow. There's Jay Powell. We're continuing to monitor that. Of course, we'll bring you any headlines that you need to know about over the course of the next 15 minutes or so. In the meantime, let's bring in Tom Lee now. He is the head of research at Fundstrat. Tom, welcome back to you. It's not going to be a surprise to anybody to hear that you are bullish on the market. I think that's fair to say. You suggest today in a note that you think the odds still favor that markets bottomed on 224. You're standing by that. What do you make of what the Fed chair had to say today and the level of specificity in which he said it? Uh, well, it was it was a positive development. I mean, that's why we're seeing markets react the way it is. I mean, a lot of it is what the committee members said, which is visibility is returned. And I think today we did finally price in the first hike. So March 15th now is just a formality. But I think that the second sort of importance of, of today's testimony is it's an incrementally dovish move. Uh, because it's acknowledging all the challenges because of this war. And it takes down, I think it reduces the risk that the Fed will tighten into a, and, and create a recession. So I, I think it kind of validates our view that even though the first half is going to be pretty tough here, the 224 
might actually be the low for the first half. But I, again, I, I'd say that odds are increasing. I'm not sure how much, you know, I, I don't know what probability I could say assign to that. How, how many hikes by the Fed are you personally now expecting? Uh, well, I'm, you know, I'm looking more at Fed futures to see what the market's pricing, Scott. And so I think, you know, the four to five sounds appropriate. Um, but of course, you know, there, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot to happen. There's a lot of news that'll happen between now and December. So I, I would say, again, I think the best thing to be said today is that the Fed doesn't look like it's behind the curve. You know, the 25 basis points is, is what the market was expecting. But we know that, that Powell, and he said as much himself, you got to be careful about reading too much dovishness into what he said today, because at the end of the day, though he was specific about 25 versus 50, um, he didn't give you any indication to think that they were going to change course in the bigger picture, Tom Lee. And that is perhaps the biggest headline that you get today, not the 25. It's the fact that no matter what's happening right now, as of today in the world, it's not enough to move the Fed share off course. Uh, that's true, Scott. I mean, you know, I, I think that there's sort of a binary view in markets that if the Fed is normalizing, we should have a bear market. But as you know, normalizing monetary policy that's appropriate, even though it's an adjustment, doesn't mean stocks have to fall into a bear market. So I, I think that that's a really important distinction. And also by sort of slowing some of the hikes, it is giving us more time to, to, to really understand how much of the supply chain is adding to pricing pressures versus uh, unremitting, unremitting demand or excess demand versus supply chain issues. So I, I think it's an incrementally positive development. Steve Leisman, or Tom, will you stick with me for a second? Steve Leisman, I know you have to run. I want to ask you one last yeah. question, and I want you to react to, to what Tom Lee uh, had to say, specifically on the idea that by simply mentioning the fact that Ukraine has introduced uncertainty into the outlook, at least somewhat, and even if it's such a small amount, there is that level of uncertainty that he says, does Powell, we're going to proceed carefully. Um, if that in and of itself is right. a more dovish tilt today than he has been of late. So for now, you know, my problem, uh, Scott, as a human being, is I really understand both sides. I can incorporate Tom Lee's optimism and Stephen Weiss's pessimism uh, in, into my brain and understand it all. Because, listen, Tom, you have to understand this, that the chairman is saying inflation is going to come down one way or another. So let's examine what that means. One way is we raise modestly and uh, we're able to take our time and do this in a measured way. And we get the help from all the things we talked about, supply chain disruptions, people coming back to work. Or the other means that they step on the gas pedal or they, they uh, step on the brakes really hard. They end up raising rates uh, in, in, in a very, very uh, hurtful way or painful way for the economy. That possibility does exist. I feel like that's the world that Steve lives in. We don't really know. Nobody has done a very good job, Scott, of predicting where this economy is going and, and the data during this pandemic. We're coming out of this thing. We haven't done it before. So I would think that it, there's room for both of you guys to, to, to have really good points of view on this, and I can see both sides of it. Steve, I know you've got to run. I appreciate your time with us today. That's Steve Leisman. Right. Tom Lee, the bottom line is no, no matter what, um, because of what the Fed is going to do, it's undeniable growth is going to slow as well. They may be able to get inflation under control, but by doing so, they're going to slow down the economy. It's a foregone uh, conclusion. It's going to happen. 
Uh, that's right, Scott. Um, but I think part of the, the discussion also is to include about positioning and market expectations and consensus. And talking to our clients over the last couple of weeks, I think many were fearful or almost hysterical about inflation being out of control and the Fed so far behind the curve. So today's uh, testimony is kind of a sanity check. And 25 basis points is an incrementally dovish move. Um, and then from a market's perspective, it's providing visibility. So I think there was, I think what we're seeing today is really markets were positioned for a much more hawkish Fed and a much more dire outlook. What, what seems reasonable to you before I let you run, uh, let's say, the halfway point of the year for the S&P 500 and then for the remainder of the year in total for, for the S&P? What's a number in your head or a couple of them that makes sense for investors to think about today in light of what your own expectations are for this regime of the Fed, uh, which we're expecting is, is going to remain intact? Uh, our, our base case from early December 2021 for this year was that the market would be at best flat, but a drawdown of as much as 10%. So that's been our expectation through June. But I think we see a lot of these headwinds become tailwinds as we get further into tightening, better clarity on inflation, and you know closer to the midterm cycle. And so uh, we still think you're going to exit the year with S&P 5100 or better, uh, and that means, you know, a second half rally that's double digits. But again, just getting through the first half, that's challenging. We will see you many times between now and then. I know Tom Lee, thank you for joining us. That's Tom Lee from Fundstrat, of course. Let's bring in Brian Belsky, BMO chief investment strategist with his own view. What do you make of what you heard today, Brian? Hey, thanks for having us. I think we need to put to bed now uh, the notion that that Powell does not know what he's doing. I think he truly is the smartest person in the room. Many clients that we talk to, I echo what Tom had to say, uh, have made these binary decisions that the Fed is making a major mistake. I think he's been a wonderful uh, Fed chairman, and he did a a masterful job today. Uh, The train has left the station. We're going to be raising rates, and and that's a good thing, remember, because that means the economy can stand on its own two feet. And our work shows uh, that the market can, will, and should go up alongside interest rates. Now, I think one of the things that you have to kind of worry about, and you mentioned it, uh, that if growth slows, uh, what does that mean for the market? So I learned a long time ago that when, gr- when growth is scarce, growth outperforms. Think about that. And so we, we as investors have already decided that it's going to be a value market. And we, in our strategy, quite frankly, are positioned accordingly over the next 12 months, meaning overweight financials, discretionary materials and industrials. But I think that's really what's going on here, this tug of war between growth and value. And the market itself has been so resilient. Look at these consumer staple-ish tech names that have kind of bottomed out and led the market. And the reason why they've done that, Scott, is because they provide investors with consistent earnings. I believe the best place in the world to be is in is North America because of earnings and because of the consistency of earnings in Canada, the United States. And I think investors are going to pay for that. And so the market is a market of stocks. I think too many people are making decisions on the index level. There's lots of great stocks that have both growth and value attributes, big and small cap attributes, and that's where you should be. But to discuss this a little bit further, you say if the economy slows. It's not a matter of if, it's when, isn't it? It it is, and it's a great point, and that's why we're not going all in on value, quite frankly. I think you have to own both growth and value and be much more balanced. And remember, when we came out with our 2021 forecast in November of 20, uh, 2022 forecast, I'm sorry, in November of 2021, we said 5,300. And that means we are going to have a big rally the second half of the year and some volatility of the first half of the year. 
but listen, I think that that growth has to normalize and it's going to be a transition to normalcy, not only in terms of interest rates, inflation, valuation and earnings growth. This is going to be a path. It's not going to just happen in 2022, Scott. It's going to be into 2023. Quite frankly, if you want to hear something bearish about Belsky, I would say that the likelihood of a bear market and or recession happens after those things normalize well into 2023 and 2024. So stay with me because I want to bring the committee in, too. Um, Carrie, it's not like you're you know, sitting on your hands in, in the market at, at the current time, right? Belsky's positive. Tom Lee is, is positive and, and has been such for a while. You're putting money to work in technology. You're putting money to work in some of the financial names as well, which is an interesting place to be, given the fact that those stocks have been absolutely destroyed of late and can't seem to get out of their own way, except for maybe a moment today. Can you talk me through your perspective, your philosophy on where you want to be putting that money into the market right now, if anywhere? Yeah, I mean, you're you're making a very good point that as professional investors, our job, as Brian says, is to find the right places, whether they're growth or value, at the right prices. And, you know, we, we felt that Adobe, which is a stock we have watched for years and not bought because its multiple was too high, had come, <clears throat> come down to a level. It's a software company. It's just traded off consistently, you know, for many months now. And we can buy it at, you know, 25 times cash flow. It's under 30 times next year's earnings. It's not a cheap stock, but it's a fast-growing stock. It owns its, its, its marketplace, and we don't see that diminishing over the next several years. So we just started a, to add a position. It's not a full position yet, but we like it. And same with Fidelity National. These companies have been just destroyed. It's 12 times next year's uh, 12 months' earnings. And it continues to be a powerhouse in the payment, processing, banking, security. It has a big share. And we thought this is where we'd like to enter on, uh, F on FIS. It's just price, and these are good companies. And at a certain point, the market will recognize that. It brings me to a segue back to you, Brian, in that it wasn't that long ago on this very program where when I asked you what sector you liked more than anything else, you said financials, 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 saying it three times to underscore, in fact, how much you like that sector, which has proven to be not a great call. Obviously, those stocks have gotten hammered. What about now? Carrie's putting, put, Carrie's putting a little bit of money into one specific name. But what about the area in general, which hasn't been able to get out of its own way since earnings? Well, I mean, I think since earnings, you've seen some weakness, but really you saw a lot of weakness as bond yields uh, reverse, quite frankly. And that's why we'd like the money center banks, the asset managers uh, and the broker dealers, because they benefit from the theme of scale. Canadian banks as well play along with that. I think the regional banks, even in this relatively low interest rate environment, Scott, are still going to have a harder time, especially managing the net interest margin in environment. So, no, we stand behind that. We love Bank of America, J.P. Morgan. We love the BMO stock and TD and RBC. And we also like BlackRock. I think on this weakness, uh, people are going to come back into equities and BlackRock and some of the other asset managers will benefit from that. You love the BMO stock. You're allowed to recommend your own name? Dean, whatever, <laughs> dude. <laughs> I don't think so. Well, listen. No, no listen. I've long said, and this is very important, that, that Canadian banks are excellent stewards of capital. And, and for the record, we run a mutual fund, and BMO is one of our largest positions, but we mm -hmm. love RBC and TD as well because of their exposure to the U.S., and they have that scale. 
they're Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Light, and we think they're exquisitely positioned over the next 10 years. All right. I appreciate you being with us, Brian Belsky, from BMO, <laughs> joining us today. We'll talk to you again soon. Uh, Farmer Jim, you've heard a lot from a lot of people over the last 20 minutes or so, 40 minutes. What do you make of it? I think we're supposed to be bullish here. Um, you know, I, I heard what Steve Weiss said, uh, the negatives, particularly on the supply chain. And, and the only thing I would say to that is that the market knows that. The market knows that Russia is an issue for things like neon and palladium that go into chip and automobile manufacture. So you have to figure out what does the market now know that it didn't know yesterday. It knows that, frankly, the Fed is a little bit less dovish than it thought. And that's a positive. So I don't care if you're with Brian saying, hey, I want to be in growth or you're with me saying you want to be in cyclicals. One way or the other, you got to get into less, the market hold on, now because resolution is coming. Hold on. Less dovish than we thought or less uh, hawkish. Less hawkish. Thank you. Sorry. Less hawkish. Thank you, Scott. Okay. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page because that confused me for just a moment. And I think I know what you meant. And I just want to make sure we're clear. Uh, we have about a minute left. Joe Terranova, give me a thought that I want Steve Weiss to give one as well. Again, we have 60 seconds remaining in the program. So please keep that in mind. Joe. I think ultimately the way we break out of this malaise is we wake up one morning. We have good news from Russia and Ukraine. You have a lot of cash balances on the sidelines. And the market gaps open higher, and a lot of people are not long enough. I think that's ultimately how we know it bottoms. Yeah, keep your eye on the buyback story, too, which Joe has certainly liked to talk about uh, consistently for a matter of years. Steve Weiss, you've got 30 seconds until we're done. Yeah, I, I love the bank stock, so I, I agree with, uh, with Belsky on that. And that may be where it ends. But, look, B of A is incredibly cheap. It would be my final trade. Goldman, the other one I own, and the Kingbacks have done well. But I still think cautious. Mm -hmm. You don't cure the issues with the market today in one day. All right. We're going to tweet out the final trades, uh, by the way. We'll show you the markets. You see them on the right-hand side of your screen. Dow right now up 621 points. Powell continuing his testimony on the Hill, which we continue to monitor. The exchange begins now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC.